Hey, this is a Hakawati production. Hi, friends! Cryptocurrency has been in the news lately, and not always in a good way. Just recently, a number of high profile Twitter accounts were hacked to spread a massive crypto scam, including the accounts of Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Joe Biden. And the scam basically was just a post that invited followers to send money to a blockchain address, and then they would get double their investment in return. That Ponzi scheme is actually a very common scam, and it works really well. In this case I just mentioned, not too long ago, the scammer's account raised at least $116,000 in just a few minutes. And in fact, cryptocurrency scams reportedly took in more than $4 billion in 2019 alone. So what's up with cryptocurrency? Is it safe? Is it legit? Should we all be taking a closer look at this digital currency that's slowly creeping into our economic systems? To answer this, we have on the show today the co-founder and chief operating officer at the Gibral Network, which provides currencies, equities, commodities, and other financial assets and instruments as standard ERC-20 tokens on the Ethereum blockchain. I have no idea what any of that means, but that's why we're here. Please welcome Talal Taba. Hello, Talal. Welcome to the show. Hi. Pleasure to be on. So do most people understand what Gibral does? And do they even know what the blockchain is and how cryptocurrency works in any way, shape or form? All right. So that's that's a bit of a stretch of, of saying whether people understand it, because anyone that works in crypto, people who work within the company don't necessarily understand what they're doing or what their company is doing, because... Uh, the the space is growing at such a fast pace that something that three months ago could be outdated or irrelevant. Um, if you look at any crypto or blockchain company, probably the only ones that haven't adjusted their business model are cryptocurrency exchanges, because it's been very clear from day one that they basically buy and sell crypto. Uh, but the companies that work in, in, in the more blockchain space, for example, um, ones that work on asset tokenization, or remittances or payments, the business model is continuously evolving and, and we're seeing stuff that just like when the computer or the internet was invented, things that we couldn't even think of before are being experimented with. And I'm like, all right, everyone's having this, you know, you know how you know the Gartner hype cycle where a new technology comes out, everyone becomes super excited about it. And Basically, if, if you look at it as like a y-axis and x-axis, with x-axis being actual progress and y-axis being hype, uh, everything, like people automatically jumped on crypto in 2017 because unlike previous tech bubbles, any person with an internet connection could participate and go in and buy Bitcoin or, or crypto. Like you'd hear about it in the barbershop, you'd hear about it in a taxi, dinner, etc. That was, that was 2017 and that was the peak of let's say, the hype on, on, on crypto. Uh, after that, uh, w- w- what that led is to a lot of startups in the crypto and blockchain space getting funded. And those companies that got funded are basically now figuring out which business model, which value proposition is, is, is most sustainable. So actually, no, the, the process is they figure out what problems blockchain can solve, and then they build a viable business case around that. So th- that makes 
uh, most of us feel a little bit better. The fact that people that work within your companies don't even know what what the hell's going on. But you know, you guys are using all the. I mean, cri cryptocurrency has been around for about 10 years. But the stuff that you guys do at Gibral, for example, I mean, the words you use like uh, uh, eth Ethereum. Ether how do you pronounce that? Eth Ethereum. Yeah, Ethereum. Ethereum. Yep, Ethereum. Uh, the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, you say that you um, provide currencies, equities, and other financial assets and instruments as standard ERC-20 tokens. I mean, who knows? That's like complicated language. So how, how do you explain it for, for idiots like me who have no clue what, you know, like who, who even haven't caught up, quite caught up to cryptocurrency, uh, you know, uh, the first version? I guess it's not really, I wouldn't call it idiots at all. Basically, people who deal with crypto today are mostly crypto geeks or early adopters. It really hasn't reached the mass scale. Like you could you could find people who trade it as a hobby, etc. But if you go to like to my mom, for example, she'll just say, no, yeah, that's something my son works in, but she wouldn't use it in day to day life. Like crypto hasn't reached that level yet. Um, but but what how do I describe what we do at Gibral? Gibral's concept is to tokenize financial assets. So before we can understand what tokenizing financial assets means, I want to draw a comparison between crypto assets or digital assets and then traditional financial assets. In crypto assets, they are very easy to send and receive. They are 24-7 and they are programmable. I'll explain what programmable means in just a bit. But, but we're clear on easy to send and receive and 24-7, right? Yes. Okay, and then traditional financial assets on the other side, they are stable, they are regulated, and they're insured. But in order to transact with them, you need to basically um, send them via an intermediary. If I want to send you dollars, right, I need to go through a bank that goes through another bank and then gets you the money, which is why it's been slow and expensive, but it's trusted and insured. So if, if you think of crypto assets versus traditional assets and like the advantages and disadvantages of each, in crypto assets, it's the most efficient way of transferring value humankind has ever seen. However, it doesn't hold value the same way traditional people or businesses do. So what we do at Gibral is we represent traditional financial assets in the form of Ethereum tokens. So you know how like there's always an argument of, oh, yeah, crypto isn't backed up by anything. Right. You, you often hear that argument is, oh, yeah, what is Bitcoin backed by? Uh, that's for another answer. But basically what we do is we create assets that look like crypto and they function like crypto in terms of how easy they are to send, easy to receive. But they're backed up by an underlying asset. So, for example, one of the products we have is called Jcash. It is a, it is a crypto token, but it's backed up by a dollar. So its price is fixed to a dollar. I, I understand what you're trying to say, and that makes a lot of sense, but it's very hard to wrap your mind around something digital that doesn't really exist having value. So how do you really peg it? I mean, the person, let's say they have, I don't know, a hundred thousand, a million dollars, okay, in the bank, and they want to use your your services, what you're talking about. How, how do they peg it? How do you ensure that, that what they're using is backed up? All right. Very good question. So we're, we're embarking into a new type of monetary financial system. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a bit. But I just want to make sure I clarified how uh, people use or how we work with Gibral. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, today, if you hold Bitcoins, all right, and like 
First of all, our target audience isn't traditional users. We're not going after, for example, doctors or or, uh, teachers or your standard customer. That's not what we're going after. At the moment, we're still going after early adopters, people who are going to test out our technology, give us proper feedback, so that in a couple of years' time, we're able to target the masses. And that's because it's quite early on in crypto. Like if you think of when the internet was first created or the intranet, it was a very long time before you got companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, like Google, Amazon started in the like in the in the 90s. Uh, and then Amazon and Google were losing money for the first, I don't know, seven, eight years of their operation. But usually back to the Gartner hype cycle that I was talking about is people get very, very excited about a technology. And then once the bubble bursts, which happened in early 2018, people say, oh, yeah, it's it's BS. You know, this this is this is not something that's going to work. And then you go through like what's called the trough of disillusionment where people say, you know what, is it important? Is blockchain useful? Is it not? And then slowly but surely you see people building, using the money they raised during the crazy times. Like when we when we did our own fundraising, a lot of people told me and my partner that like, you know, what the hell are you smoking? Are you crazy? Of course, you're not going to raise that type of money. That's because we didn't go down the traditional VC route. Like today, if you want to raise capital for a startup, you go to the different VCs in the Middle East, you go to family offices, angel investors, and you you are basically limited with your somewhat physical reach. Uh, if not physical, it has to be digital, but through your network. Like a stranger isn't going to give you uh, money for your company. But what we realized in crypto that a stranger could give us money for our company if we do the process fully digitally. So when we when we raised capital, we did what's known as an ICO, initial coin offering. Um, and then we sold basically to uh, 3,300 investors from over 110 countries um, and ended up doing two rounds. One was $3 million and one was 30. And that, that was basically something that wouldn't have been possible Unless it was during 2017, because that's when like the peak of the crypto craze was happening. Interesting. So instead of selling traditional shares, you sold coins. Crypto coins. Yeah, Crypt- exactly. Crypto coins. Yes, obviously not like the, the metal yeah. kind. <laughs> Still not quite <laughs> yeah, there. So it looks yeah. like um, like right now because it's in kind of it's an infancy it looks like regulating the blockchain and and i still don't understand what the blockchain is um and how is it kind of like the the digital network where all the cryptocurrency trading takes place okay so let's let's take a step back first thing we need to do, the the like separate the meaning of blockchain and cryptocurrencies yes okay so First of all, cryptocurrencies and bit and blockchain were founded at the same time. In 2009, after the 2008 financial crash, uh, there was a white paper published online by a guy called Satoshi Nakamoto, who we still don't know who this guy, guy, girl, group of people is. Um, and they, they released something called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer cash transaction. Uh, sorry, a peer-to-peer cash uh, system, digital cash system. So the Bitcoin white paper is essentially described Bitcoin and it described blockchains. So blockchains was something that was created as part of Bitcoin. And I'll, I'll try to give you an example that hopefully isn't very confusing. But if any, at any point it is confusing, please feel free to stop me. So I'm going to compare a Bitcoin transaction to a bank transaction. 
and then we'll figure out why they call it peer-to-peer and then what a blockchain is. So again, if I want to send you money today from Dubai to Lebanon, what would I do? I would go to my bank and the bank would verify that Talal has $10 and he verifies my identity and then he checks your IBAN. And then after I send you the money, the bank makes sure that I can't spend that money again. Correct? Right. Is that point clear? Uh, Yeah, so far so good. So basically the bank's function was to verify my identity, verify that I have sufficient balance, and most importantly, make sure I can't spend that money again. That's, that's why we use an intermediary. So with Bitcoin, I send you the money directly from my account to your account without going through a bank. And that's possible through something called digital scarcity. And, and this is a very fascinating concept, honestly. Today, imagine you had a PDF file, okay? And you wanted to send me that PDF file. What actually happens? You take a copy of the PDF file and you send me the copy. So now there's two copies of the same PDF file, one on your device, one on my device. That's not an issue if I'm sending you a WhatsApp video or voice note or PDF file, but it would be a disaster if I'm sending you a dollar or if I'm sending you gold or if I'm sending you something of value because I shouldn't be able to copy and paste or copy and send you dollars or gold because that's something that technically should have a fixed supply. Correct? Correct. Okay, so Bitcoin is the first digitally scarce asset. If I send you my Bitcoin, there is no way on earth I could re-spend that Bitcoin. So Bitcoin solved something called the double spend problem, which was never possible in anything digital. Like before 2009, there wasn't anything that is digital and scarce at the same time. Like if, if you think of gold, there's a limited, no matter how much supply of gold is on the market, the maximum amount is going to be the amount of gold available on planet earth. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a maximum. Assuming we're not. There's a maximum. Maximum supply. Okay. Exactly. So the 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 fact that there's a maximum supply makes it scarce. But that property we had never seen in a digital world. We've only seen it with Bitcoin. So the blockchain is. Blockchains are databases that are not stored in a central server. So, let's take an example. Today. And I'm going to go back to me sending you money. All right. If I send you money or, or let's let's take another example between two companies, an invoice that is payable and an invoice that is receivable. So I need to pay you. I owe you ten dollars. And then on your uh, accounting papers, you would say that you're supposed to receive ten dollars from my side. But we record the data separately. I have data on my side. You have data on, on, on your side. If I could potentially change that. And we would have different sources of data. With with blockchain, the data is always agreed to by all parties. So are you familiar with like Google Sheets yeah, or Excel? Of course, yeah. Okay, cool. So imagine everyone that's participating on the blockchain has a copy of an Excel file that says Talal 10, Nadia 5, X1, like a balance for each person. I like that you gave yourself the highest balance, Talal. I'm going to transfer that over to you. Okay, That's why. okay good. Uh, let's say I transferred Nadia my full 10. Okay. Okay. I'm supposed to have zero and you're going to have 15. Mm-hmm. So what happens on a blockchain is 
everyone that's participating on the network records that transaction. So everyone that's participating, and these are what uh, what are known as the miners, or or I'm I'm sure you've heard the word Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. So everyone records that Palal has minus 10 and Nadia has plus 10. Everyone participating on the blockchain knows that for a fact. This is undisputed. Okay. And if and if you send it to someone else, everyone again records the new state of data that's correct. So in a traditional world, we would have had to do reconciliation at the end of the month or we had to do reconciliation after a week or a year. In in blockchains, reconciliation and yeah, so reconciliation is the process of making mm-hmm. sure that our accounts match. Sure. And in, in in this case, it happens after every single transaction. In real time. Yes, there's always a trusted source of 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 data. So one one example that that usually requires a diagram, but I'll give it a shot. The internet connects Talal and Nadia and everyone else. So imagine you have an Excel file on your computer that you update and 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 then save. It stays on your computer, right? And on, on my side, I also have some ERP system that I create information on and I store it. So there, there's a network in the middle, but the data is pushed all the way around the edges. So there's always going to be conflicting data. There's always going to be a need for reconciliation, sometimes write-offs, audits, yeah, and, and, and many other financial intermediaries that aren't really needed. So it sounds to me like it's kind of like a global digital bank kind of thing, but but it's okay. I, I'm going to have to read more about it. But it's it looks like what's happening right now for those of you like for crypto geeks and and people who have who are kind of developing this technology, it looks like it's something that's slowly taking shape um and that's trying to develop a kind of framework in order to build trust. Um, and I imagine this kind of process has happened with real money over the centuries. So I know you attend a lot of global conferences worldwide where people are trying to figure out how to connect all the dots. Where do we stand now? Are there any new things happening that people should know about in terms of like helping to build trust in the system and facilitate its use? Yeah, of course. Um, there's many different innovations in the field of blockchain that are that are just taking off this year. Uh, one of the most important ones, I'd say, is something called decentralized finance. And decentralized finance is basically uh, your ability to obtain financial services through a blockchain network, actually specifically on the Ethereum blockchain. So without confusing you, in Bitcoin or the earlier example I gave, I sent you money. I compared me transfer you money uh, through a bank or through Bitcoin, but the transaction is sending money. What happens in decentralized finance is I could trade, I could borrow, I could lend. And then basically you have financial transactions going peer to peer. So I no longer need to go to a bank to get a loan. Like for example, I have I have X amount of Ethereum. I can get a loan based on that Ethereum without going to a bank. Wow. Just by logging in online and, and putting that up as collateral and taking out a loan. If I pay back my loan, I get back my collateral. Do you envision a time when all or most of the world's financial transactions will be conducted like on uh, like digitally and in in digitally in this way? Hello, I, 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 it's not that I think that that will happen. That will most definitely happen. How soon do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, so basically we have to remember that our humans are lazy as shit. Like pe- people don't like change. Even if technology is a million times more, like some people still, you know, some banks have fax numbers on their business cards. 
You know, that's that's how slow <laughs> humans are to change. It's a, I'm a bit slow too. It took me about like five seconds to react to that. That is funny. Lala, but you know, for basically, even if you have very efficient ways of of moving money around, like just think of when the debit card came in. Like imagine the the first store to be approached with a debit card. They were like, piss off. I want cash. Like, what what is this? Or check or traveler's check or there's always like the the, the payments field will always have a a piece for everyone, I guess. Yeah. Because you also have to remember that cash is the most anonymous form of payment. Yes. And whether That's we important. like it or not, that is something that people value and people appreciate. And some people use it for nefarious reasons and, and for illicit activities. And some people use it for, for other purposes. But humans will generally want to avoid being fully controlled by a government, a company. Uh, Definitely. But what's going to happen like in the coming 20 years, I think, is a separation of state and money. So if you think of what happened with like in the religions and, and, and then in the U.S. pushing for separation of state and church, now I think that at some point people will want to use money that's not issued by a government. And we we saw that with Libra, right? Like, Okay, Facebook's probably a shitty company as an example because they have so much bad history. But I'd take money from Google. I I already take, you know, like if, if Google issued their own money, would you use it? I probably would use it over like uh, Turkish lira. Yeah. The point that I'm trying to make is you're going to have uh, money that is not necessarily issued by government. And uh, Bitcoin is the best example of that because people take money for what it is today. But the reality is the dollar is just over 100 years old. Like in, in, in the 1800s, the dollar barely, in the 1700s, it was, it, it, it was created and only really, really started getting used in, uh, in 1907 and, and became like the global currency in, uh, after the World War. I don't think that that will be the case for for the rest of our lifetime. This idea of separation of banks and government is is really mind-boggling and fascinating to think about. Um, but I mentioned at the top of the show before you actually came on that uh, crypto scams have taken in more than $4 billion uh, in the last year. And I just read that one of the leading... Uh, Ethereum developers parody accidentally permanently froze over $160 million worth of user funds accidentally, permanently, because of a fault or a glitch in its wallet. So the point is that obviously when you're dealing with anything digital or um, AI, you're opening yourself to, uh, to the possibility of being hacked. There are risks associated. Is crypto uh, less secure than the traditional banking system? Of course not. The banking system is the most corrupt thing you'll ever see on earth. Because so you mentioned that there's what like what what were the numbers you mentioned like hack of 150 million four or, billion or... dollars last year cryptocurrency yeah. scams you know like the one that just happened on uh, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah. The Twitter one was insane, by the way. But that wasn't crypto's fault. That was Twitter's uh, poor security systems. Yeah. Well, but anyway, uh -huh. do you know that you know that Bank of America once paid a fine of 16 billion. One fine, one settlement for 16 billion. Chase has paid 13 billion as a settlement. And some of the uh, HSBC has paid over a billion on money laundry. So basically any new technology at the beginning is going to have uh like when the internet first started, people 
or I wasn't like very aware at the time, but it was it was used for money laundry, for child pornography, for drug trafficking. It's it's only natural. Like uh, humans will use a technology for good things and bad things. Yeah, to be fair, I mean, there's always going to be scams. Uh, like, you know, people are always going to try to hoodwink people out of their money. This ni- You remember this Nigerian prince email scam where you get an email? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's still working. I mean, maybe they have it from different countries, but people get these emails like, please send, you know, $5,000 to this bank account because this person needs to get out of the country and then we'll double your money. We'll pay you back twice as much for helping us. And people still fall for it. Like over $700,000 lost by people being scammed scammed with this stupid scam that's been around for 20 years. So also people are gullible and that people always take advantage of that in some way, regardless if it's crypto or cash. But um, has has the blockchain been hit by recent events in the same way traditional financial market has, like when people invest um, digitally? Has it been affected by COVID-19, like in the real world? Okay, so uh, short term, every single entity person that is investing of their own balance sheet has taken a pause has reevaluated took a step back to see what's happening because it's their hard earned money they're not on the clock to invest it or spend it okay and then you have vcs or funds that raised capital from limited partners and they are basically on the clock to invest and generate returns so if they don't invest they're screwed and if they don't show that they're open for business, they can't raise a next fund. So there's there's really two different mindsets here. If you're investing your own money, you yeah probably everyone took a uh, like crypto was crypto is, is, is uh, previously had this this uh, image of a safe haven asset that went to crap after what happened in March. Bitcoin was like collapsed forty percent in a day. Uh, to reach something like, uh, and then eventually reached 3,500 and now has almost yeah doubled or tripled back to 9,000. Uh, so it's a very volatile asset and it's people who invest in Bitcoin have invested in it for, for several reasons. But the main, main one I would say is actually main two. First, it's a hedge against inflation. And I can't stress this enough. Like, I I think everyone in the world should own some Bitcoin because it's a hedge against inflation. And I'll explain, living in Beirut, I'm sure you would would really appreciate the importance of that. Uh, Because basically when when currency fails, people go to hard assets, things that you can't print out of thin air. So U.S. government, if they get in trouble, they print money. If you look at how much money they've printed the past uh, since 2008, it's insane. And what that actually does is me and you work every week, every month to get a paycheck. And that paycheck is denominated in dollars, which means our hours of work are then valued in dollars. But our hard-earned dollars are becoming diluted or are becoming less valuable because the government, U.S. government is printing insane amounts of dollar. And that's not something you can do with Bitcoin or gold. So that's why I think... Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation is very important. And second thing is sovereignty. It is not under the control of some person in the Ministry of Finance or the central bank to say, you know what, block this guy's money or this girl's money. It you 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 own it. No one else can take it away from you. And that's something that a lot of people are valuing these days with uh, political instability, 
corruption. You know, imagine if you had Bitcoin and you were a Syrian refugee, you would just go anywhere else in the world, cash it out and start again. Yeah, when you present it like that, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially with the way that they're talking about possibly the U.S. economy, you know, uh, collapsing and, and having massive inflation. And, and also this idea of having a global currency that it really doesn't matter where you are in the world. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's just a matter of people kind of wrapping their minds around it. And I guess you're right. It's it's hard for people to adapt to new concepts, especially when it comes to something that's so intrinsic to their daily lives as as currency. But um, so Jabrella is based in a place in Switzerland called Zug, which is also known as Crypto Valley. So what is it about that town or Switzerland um, in general that makes it an ideal place to base a global cryptocurrency business there? Good question. Good question. Uh, actually, when when I was setting up the company, it wasn't even my idea. So my partner, my partner Yezan, uh, he, he's the CEO of the company and, and the guy that came up with the idea. What's his name? Uh, I was doing Yezan, mm-hmm. Yezan Barghouti. He's uh, an American guy, American Jordanian that lives in Jordanian American, actually, Palestinian American Jordanian. Anyway, Yezan lives in New York and, and uh, he was starting off uh, Jibril, but it was called Hawala before that, supposedly to do, to do remittances. And um, I knew Yezan from school, like as a guy four or five years older than me that was friends with my cousin. Uh, and then I met him in Dubai a couple of times. But then I saw and I knew that he traded crypto. That was like 2015, where really no one traded crypto. Two years after that, I saw that he quit his uh, job on LinkedIn and was researching blockchain full time. So I messaged him saying, like, what are you researching? I was... I was uh, working uh, in Saudi and I was raising capital for another blockchain company I wanted to start. That wasn't Jibril. It was something in the aviation space. And then when Yazan explained his idea, I'm like, okay, shit, your idea is way better than mine. That's when I decided to stop whatever I was working on, go back to the investors, tell them, thank you very much, but here's your money back. I'm doing something else. Most of the investors, except for one or two, Uh, told me, all right, move the money to this new company that you're doing. Uh, so at that point, Yazan and I had to, uh, and Victor had to register an entity. And, and I basically did an evaluation of, like, I think it was nine different jurisdictions. I went to Singapore, I went to Malta, I went to Switzerland, Liechtenstein. Uh, we evaluated Delaware, Bahrain, Hong Kong, I think, and uh, Barbados. So we evaluated all of these different jurisdictions in terms of how open they are to crypto, whether the banks there accept crypto or not, because that's the biggest issue, right? Like now you have in the Middle East, oh, we're pushing towards crypto, but banks still don't accept it. So you want somewhere where you can easily interact with the banks and they wouldn't have an issue with crypto. And and that was for us Switzerland. And it was a good bet because Switzerland and Singapore are probably the most two active places when it comes to crypto. Man, they're so good with money there. And and, and Singapore yeah. is so forward thinking in every realm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was wondering how that happened because I was looking at your bio and I noticed that uh, first you've worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers as a consultant. You also managed mm-hmm. a private, private investment fund in Saudi Arabia. Is that what you were talking about? Yes, yes. I... Uh... I lived in Saudi for three years, I think. I used to manage a family office and investment fund for a member of the royal family, but he was uh, like on, on the business side only. He wasn't involved in politics. 
And I actually got them to buy Bitcoin quite early. So that's why when I was going to leave and I wanted to start a company, they obviously helped me in, in fundraising and, and invested themselves. But how did you end up in finance? Because I was looking at your bio and you have a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering from Purdue in, in the US. And that seems kind of unrelated to what you do now. So how did you end up working Who in finance? Who the hell uses his university degree? I think university degrees are like so overrated. No one really actually uses them. Good answer. <laughs> It's true. I mean, you make a good point. I mean, a lot of people are saying that now, but finance, you need to have some kind of foundation. I'll tell you how it happened. I I graduated from Purdue, which is like at the time it was the number one industrial engineering school. Like industrial engineering is their thing. Um, and I wanted to work something similar. So I actually started my first six months was in a great pharmaceuticals company called Hikma. I was a supply chain engineer, so I'd have to wake up at like 3.30 a.m., be at the factory by 4.30, shift starts at like 5. And it was honestly something I could not see myself doing for, for much longer. Uh, I'm like, okay, I, I, that's what I studied. But you know, industrial engineering is the least type of engineering that, or like it's the closest to finance and economics in terms of the engineering uh, degrees. If you compare like a chemical engineer or electrical engineer with industrial, industrial, a lot of it is economics. And I, I did econ minor in university and I, I, I've been trading for a while. Actually, finance is something that a lot of people for finance a lot of time is self-taught. And a lot of uh, industrial engineers actually end up in finance. Oh, I didn't know that. But now I do. I've learned so much today. So just to wrap it up, um, if someone was curious about crypto and wanted to kind of get into it and they don't have the luxury of, t of quitting their job and researching it for a year like your, uh, your CEO, Yazan, um, how, how would someone kind of get into it, a beginner? All right. So first is you open an account and you buy some crypto. Uh, I'm in the process of launching a crypto exchange actually in Bahrain. Um, but now you could do it through through other exchanges. Like you could go to Binance.com, so like finance, but with a B, and you can buy $100 worth of Bitcoin with your credit card and, and just get your hand, like roll up your sleeves and, and, and actually give it a shot. Uh, but there's so many good resources if you want to learn, and it doesn't have to be extensive or like, you know, very long necessarily. Um, and if you have any questions, reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to help you. And you have... Uh, I'm more than happy to share resources that that depend. Like you tell me, I want to I, I want to spend one hour. I want to spend two hours. I want to spend 20 minutes. The the thing I like the most about this industry is if you go speak to a banker or a physicist or a teacher of bio, biology biology or whatever, they've been doing this for like 30 years, 40 years. Everything has been thought of. Everything has been implemented. People have tried, did the mistakes, and learned from them. And everything now is kind of boring and. You, it's monotonous. With crypto, there's stuff that you say or come up with or do that you're probably the first person ever in mankind to do something like this. Or if not the first, from the first thousand in the world to do something like this. Uh, that, that's, that's the most exciting part. Is no one you speak to is actually an expert, which is why I, I wanted to make sure in the beginning I tell you, no, not, not everyone knows what crypto is and what it's going to become because it's changing at such a fast pace. But all I know is that it's going to be a very key part of the coming 30 years. You know, just think of how internet connected us 
the way we exchange information. Like this interview wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have the internet, right? I need to fly to Beirut, do it face to face, etc. What if, and I don't know, for example, if you have sponsors or whatnot, but with crypto, what could happen is that you could automate payments the same way we're automating movement of information now. Because again, drawing to the example, if I wanted to do this without the internet, I had to, to fly to Beirut. To, oh, it's, it's, it's really inefficient. The same happens with movement of money or movement like just think of, of how different it is sending an email versus sending uh, money or sending a piece of land or gold. Yeah, but I mean, you, but you have all these fintech, you have like PayPal and these kinds of things. But but we're going to have to st stop it here. Um, there's so much more to talk about. And I'd love to have you on again at some point in the future when things have kind of um, moved along. But thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such an enlightening conversation. And I really think you're a pioneer uh, in, in, in this world Very that we live in. Thank you. <laughs> so good luck with everything. That's it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you know when we release new and exciting episodes. Have a good one.